We're back. After a four-month new baby break, Love, Rinse, Repeat is recording once more, and uh, and we're back with a bang. I mean, I don't know why I say we, it's, it's me, it's a one-man show, but we're back with a bang, a slate of new interviews with a raft of incredible guests. So be sure to hit that subscribe button and share liberally with friends, with family members, and with noisy and nosy neighbours. Uh, one of the many surreal stories that dominate the news while Love, Rinse, Repeat was on break was that of the uh, the gender reveal party in California that incited a devastating wildfire. Uh, parties of this nature, despite receiving a lot of creative skewering, uh, continue to grow increasingly elaborate and prevalent. This desire to know and apparently creatively and maybe destructively signal the gender of one's child is a puzzling one if it was simply about the surface discovery of the baby's genitals. But as today's guest notes, genitals are never significant in and of themselves. The revelation of gender acts both to open and close a myriad of doors. What names are appropriate? What gifts can you ask for? What possibilities lie open before the child and family in terms of hobbies, passions, and employment? The discovery of where a child falls on the binary sex system has the power to create a whole world or destroy one. But what about bodies that trouble such a system, that pose classification challenges to these systems? Intersex bodies, which do just this, have often been pathologized, problematized, and altered via surgical intervention to make them seem less exceptional. Such bodies have been figured as troubling by doctors, parents, religious institutions, and society at large. However, what if intersex capacity to trouble is understood as a positive, as something that might challenge unquestioned norms and dubious assumptions in religion and beyond? Today's guest's work asks just these kind of questions. Welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat, a podcast recorded on Darking Young Land by me, Liam Miller, he, him, his, a minister in the Uniting Church of Australia. My guest today is Susanna Cornwell, Associate Professor in Constructive Theologies at the University of Exeter. She is the author of Sex and Uncertainty in the Body of Christ, Routledge 2010, Controversies in Queer Theology, SCM Press 2011, and Unfamiliar Theology, Reconceiving Sex, Reproduction, and Generativity, Bloomsbury 2017. Today, today, we are discussing her edited volume, Intersex Theology and the Bible, Troubling Bodies in Church, Text and Society, published with Palgrave Macmillan. It's great to be back. Uh, Susanna Cornwell, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat, and thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be here. So maybe we just uh, get a bit about, you know, just where you're based, where, you know, where we're talking, you know, we're not obviously, no one's in the same room these days, but we're definitely not in the same room. Uh, A little bit where you're based and and what work you're doing at the moment. Yeah. So um, I'm Associate Professor of Constructive Theology at the University of Exeter in in the UK. Uh, And people have never heard of Exeter. So I normally say it's about three hours away from London uh, and about an hour from Bristol for people that have heard of Bristol. Uh, so I'm in uh, uh, the University of Exeter. Uh, I'm in a theology and religion department. 
Uh, so I teach uh, constructive theologies. This year I'm teaching an option module in queer theologies and queer theories. Um, and I also teach a kind of introductory material on constructive and, uh, and contextual theologies also. Oh, great. We'll, we'll make sure we link to Exeter in the, uh, in the notes below in case anyone oh, wants to come you. and take a class. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, theological education, I, I'm all for it. Uh, so, so we're here today to talk about uh, an edited volume uh, of yours, which is Intersex Theology and the Bible, Troubling Bodies in Church, Text and Society, which is out through Palgrave Macmillan. Uh, I picked this up. Um, Palgrave did like a, a wild sale last year. I think everything was like 10, 10 pounds, yeah, no shipping. I, I, yeah. I spent, I spent a bad amount of money. Um, but I got uh, so many books. Yeah, yeah. There was some, there was some excellent things. So keep your eye out for good sales from Pal, um, from Palgrave or tell your library to get it. Uh, but so we're going to talk about this book. Let's, let's just start with broadly. Um, I guess how, I guess there's two kind of questions here. The how and the why. So, so mm-hmm. why this book, and uh, and I guess like kind of how does it come about that you began to pull it together? Okay, so um, I'll go back quite a long way. So uh, back in two thousand and four uh, to two thousand and seven, I was doing my PhD. Um, so that was was also in a theology and religion department. Uh, in fact, I now teach in the same institution that I did my PhD in. Uh, I was so say finish, in finishing right before uh, the the GFC, just a great time to be you know right. uh, yeah. ending doctoral yeah. work here. Yeah. Uh, so, um, so in, in the PhD, how I came to the PhD was that um, I'd come across some people who had been talking about the fact that as children or as young teenagers, sometimes they had, without their consent necessarily, or really without their full knowledge of what was going on, they had undergone surgery to correct something unusual about their, their anatomy, usually their genital anatomy. Uh, because they'd been born with genital anatomy that was atypical, unusual in in some way. Um, And to be honest, that was the first that I kind of heard of of intersex, which was the the term that that was being used. Um, I'd probably heard the term hermaphrodite, but wasn't really sure that that pertained to something that actually happened in the world, as opposed to, you know, something uh, mythological. Um, and certainly I didn't know very much about the way that the intersex was kind of treated medically. But, but what I came across in the early 2000s as I was preparing to start the PhD were people who, as adults, were talking about how unhappy they were about what had happened to them. Um, so there was one piece in particular that I, I came across that was a real catalyst for me uh, by uh, somebody called Esther Morris uh, Lydolf, who was talking about the fact that She'd been born with a physical condition that meant she had uh, no vaginal opening. Uh, When she was about 12 or 13, I think, um, she'd been taken into hospital, put under anaesthetic and had been kind of given surgery to create a vaginal opening. So from the perspective of, of an adult, she was kind of talking about that and talking about how distressing she had found that. Because she said, you know, I was I was a young teen. I'd begun to get to know my own body by then. Um, nobody explained to me why I was having the surgery and what she was arguing as an adult was that she didn't feel it was necessary for her to have had that surgery then because of the particular condition she had um, she would never have started to have periods so she said you know I didn't need a vagina to menstruate through and what she was arguing as an adult was she said someone made a decision that she needed to have a vagina and her reading was they felt she needed to have a vagina because later she would need to be able to have sex. And the assumption was that would be sex with men, it would be penetrative sex and so on. So 
she was talking about all the ways that she felt retrospectively that um yeah there'd been a kind of a motivation being put on her by adults that was not necessarily her motivation um so I, I came across that piece and was really kind of interested and troubled by it and immediately wondered what had been kind of written about intersex ethically, but specifically from the point of view of theological ethics. Um, and when I had a poke around in the early 2000s, there wasn't really very much at all. So from about the mid 90s, there had been a big surge in uh, intersex activism. There was lots being written in um, kind of social science literature and so on. But at the time, there wasn't really very much written uh, from a religious perspective so in my PhD what I wanted to do was to begin to kind of look at the existence and treatment of of intersex and the way that intersex people have been treated um, and I did want to do some empirical stuff as part of that so I did want to talk to uh, to, to Christians uh, and others uh, who were people with intersex characteristics um, as some of your listeners might know uh, British PhDs are quite a lot shorter than some PhDs elsewhere in the world. So a kind of typical um, British PhD program is, is three to four years. And the advice from my supervisors at the time was, because this was such a new area, I was already going to have to do quite a lot of groundwork in uh, kind of setting things up and, and the empirical thing perhaps wouldn't fit in. But I continued to, to think that was really, really important. So after my PhD, um, when I was doing a, a postdoc at the University of Manchester, that's the time when I got to do that empirical stuff. Uh, we held a, a conference at Manchester in 2013, um, and some of the papers presented at the conference are, are what the book is based on. So in my paper, I draw on some of the some of the interviews that I'd done at that point, but some of the other contributors were also people who were interested in intersex characteristics or were working on uh, issues around intersex characteristics from, uh, we have various perspectives, sort of Bible, um, Christian theology, sociology of religion, and, and so on. Yeah, thank you for that. That's really helpful to, to set it up. And I want to talk a bit about that, uh, you know, using empirical research um, a bit later. So I guess the book, you know, it's in the subtitle, like, you know, this idea of troubling uh, plays, plays throughout. Um, and I think, you know, there's kind of two levels that, you know, you kind of introduce this idea that there's a troubling uh nature uh, in the sense of, you know, you know, Christians often appeal to Genesis 127, God created male and female. And so therefore, like, you know, the existence of intersex somewhat troubles that. Um, and thus, you know, in some worlds, as, as kind of alluded to earlier with, the, with what you were reading, needs to be dealt with. Uh, but there's also a different way of how it can positively trouble, uh, you know, institutions, texts, um, and, and the like. Um, can you talk a bit about, I guess, coming to the, this idea of troubling and, and, and how yeah. it kind of um, shapes shapes the volume? Yeah, so we kind of borrowed the idea of, of troubling from uh, a book that I'm sure lots of people are familiar with, Judith Butler's book, Gender Trouble, from, from 1990. Um, so, yeah, as, as you say, one of the things that we wanted to sort of push back at was how intersex bodies were or are understood as troubling. So, the assumption from medical practitioners has often has frequently been that anyone whose body is unusual or atypical in this way um, must be distressed by that, must be kind of troubled by it. And indeed that there's something troubling about unusual bodies and especially unusual genital anatomy itself. Um, but actually from engagement with 
kind of intersex uh, activists and so on, and and some of the stuff that was uh, being done within uh, within the medical establishment and so on. It was really clear that actually there were there were a range of of ways of thinking about that, and indeed that lots of people who had undergone early corrective surgery as children retrospectively said, well, I'm not sure that had I been asked, I, I would have chosen that. I'm not sure that my body as it was would have troubled me in the way that, you know, that it was assumed to be. Um, and one of the things that they often appealed to was they said, you know, intersex is, it's an umbrella term. It kind of encompasses lots of things. It, it encompasses a kind of range of physical states, a range of, of conditions. Mostly, those are not conditions which are going to uh, they don't cause illness as such. You know, there's a there's a, a genital difference, sometimes a difference of other parts of uh, reproductive anatomy as well, but not things that are going to make somebody ill, not things that are kind of pathological yeah, yeah. Uh, in that way. So the question was, mm. why has it so often been assumed that, you know, that, that people need to be corrected? Um, a lot of the, the kind of medical paradigm that was operative in the last few decades, and, and things are changing a bit now, but but in the last few decades, um, was based on research by a sexologist called John Money, uh, who was based at, um, at Johns Hopkins uh, University in, in Maryland in the US. Um, and Money was really one of the first people who distinguished between the idea of, of sex as something biological and then gender as something, something psychological and something to do with identity. Um, but John Money's theory was that the gender of of young children was was basically plastic until the age of about two and a half, and he felt that uh, that that the gender identity somebody came to have was basically based on 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 their upbringing, on the way that that they were treated, um, and so he felt that it was really important that young children received unambiguous messages about the gender that that they were being brought up in, and what he was anxious about was that if there were children with intersex bodies, intersex characteristics who were not corrected as he saw it, basically their parents wouldn't know how to treat them. They wouldn't know how to respond to them and that those children would grow up to be kind of psychologically confused. Um, and that's one of the reasons why the early corrective surgery paradigm became so so widespread. Um, but, you know, there are, there are counter theories and, and one of those counter theories says, even if you think that bringing somebody up in, in a binary gender is important, which, you know, we might want to question that in itself, but even if you think that's really important, you don't necessarily need to change the body in order to be able to say to somebody, you know, you're a boy. Um, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. I think that's, I, I was reflecting because there's a line in the introduction, let's get it right. Um, which is, uh, where is it? yeah, genitals are never significant in and of themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was thinking about how, so, so um, we were talking um, before the interview, how I, a three month old, uh, child and you know we, we didn't find out you know you get the option now to find out the sex before mm-hmm. and we didn't um, but you know in a sense you know when you baby comes out and uh, midwife looks at the genitals and then gives you tells you okay it's a girl and it's like okay so now we have a script for these are the types of names that we might mm-hmm. want to use now these are you know the types of gifts we're going to get given and and then obviously that can then expand out to you know, depending on your your cultural and, and familial upbringing, these are the kind of roles that people might do, the kinds of hobbies. You know, they can just mm-hmm. more or less depending on on that. But even at a base level, you know, generally, you know, name and type of clothing, etc., all gets done there. And I think you know, you're touching on it before that you know, so many of the decisions that these are made are made not necessarily for the person, the child, um, 
but for either a parent who, who might be concerned or for a future partner, mm-hmm. as this kind of was alluded to earlier. And I think, you know, that's that's something that, that should trouble us is, is, is how often, you know, who is this stuff for when, as yeah. you say, there's not a actual um, this needs to happen else they'll be in pain and yeah. um, or get sick kind of thing. And it's really interesting because I think, um, again, in the early days of the intersex activism movement, it, it tended to be quite anti the medical establishment and kind of accused doctors of um, of kind of acting maliciously. And I think, by and large, doctors were not acting maliciously. They were they were doing what they thought was best. But the assumption was, you know, of course, somebody would want to be clearly and unambiguously sexed. You know, who would want to go through life with with this unusual anatomy? Um, and partly, I think that was based on kind of their knowledge of, of what society is like and the fact that society, especially a few decades ago, perhaps is not necessarily always that hospitable to difference, especially around areas like like sex and gender yeah, yeah. And, and so on. Um, so, you know, again, we were we were kind of thinking about all that as well and the way mm-hmm. that the bodies of people with intersex characteristics, you know, do trouble some of these assumptions, but especially from the point of view of, of religious institutions. So... Why is it that religious institutions, churches and so on in particular, have sometimes seemed to set particular store by the existence of unambiguously male or unambiguously female bodies and gender identities that kind of map onto that in appropriate ways? That was an inverted comment for anybody listening on the podcast. Uh, um, you know, what's, what's going on there? Mm. Um, you know, when we look historically... Clearly, it's not the case that every society and every culture has necessarily been troubled by the existence of unusual bodies. Um, it's maybe something that is, is being talked about now more than it used to be, but it's not that it never happened in the past. Different societies and cultures have had ways of, of dealing with it, of, of kind of, of figuring people, of making kind of legal provision and, and social provision and, and so on. Um, so, yeah, as a, as a Christian theologian, I'm especially interested in... Um, yeah, in in some of the some of the theologies that almost take for granted that everyone is is sexed as male or female. Um, and one of the questions I was interested in, you know, right back from the beginning of my PhD research twenty years ago, was what is it that is so what is it that is so challenging about the idea that actually not everybody fits into that model? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you look at the writings of some theologians who, if, if they talk about intersex at all, will say, well, it's just evidence that you know, we live in a broken creation, we live in a fallen world, Um, everything in creation is is kind of touched by sin, things are broken, here's an example of something that's broken, it's not the the fault of the person that they're like that, but nonetheless it's an undesirable state, it's not part of kind of God's divine creational norms, Um, perhaps it's something that, you know, in the eschaton, in in the new creation, won't exist anymore, Um, but certainly that's not the feeling that lots and lots of people with intersex characteristics have about their own bodies. They don't necessarily see them as something undesirable. They don't necessarily see them as something that they hope to be healed of. Um, you know, it, it would be wrong to say that there aren't people who experience kind of distress uh, about the fact that, that their bodies are atypical. But one of the things that I and, and you know, some of the other people that work in this area have been interested in is how much does that come from distress at the body itself and how much does that come from kind of social intolerance towards mm. difference uh, and, and diversity um, and I think from a, a Christian ethical point of view it's a really important thing to consider. Mm. 
Yeah, I think that that is so helpful. And I think because I was thinking about that, that argument you're talking about from, from some Christian circles where, yep, this is a, it's a sign of the fall. So anything that we can do to um, to change it, you know, medically or what have you, that's a good thing because that's like that's mm-hmm. the But, like, you know, that argument has often been used, you know, around disability um, yeah. and, you know, and disability theologians and, and Christians with disabilities will be, uh, uh, be rightly pushing back on that as well for a long time that, um, you know, if, if my, um, you know, autism is gone, in the eschaton, then who who am I, and who have you known, and who are you waiting to meet? Kind of thing, you know. Right. It, 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 there's, a, there's a deep problematic trajectory on that, and I think you know that you know that that we've that we've pointed out there in that field, and and I think maybe um, you know seems you know just as well to translate across in some ways here, but potentially um, struggles to because of maybe more cultural war-y kind of yeah. reasoning. Hmm. One of the things that, that you kind of talk about with the, you know, where you've talked about the way that um, surgical intervention, um, you know, seems to make the, uh, attempts to make the bodies less exceptional. Uh, and I really thought about that phrase and I'm like, is there anything less, you know, Christian than to make someone less exceptional? Like it tr- tr- truly, it seems like, you know, the Christian path is to, to celebrate what it is that makes us exceptional and to, mm-hmm. to, to, to allow that to flourish. And so I was just wondering about your, you know, with the theological work around, um, you know, the, the, you know with, the, with the activism and the claiming and that and, and seeing in, in some ways the trajectory there of a, you know a Christian path of actually going you know, the exceptional yeah there's something about you know the glory of God and the beauty of the world or something yeah 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 and I mean what lots of people appeal to you know so lots of the the Christians who were people with intersex characteristics that I spoke to at the time and uh, kind of know and, and speak to now is to say you know, if humans are made in God's image, then that goes for people with intersex characteristics as much as, as anyone else. And, you know, some of my interviewees very explicitly said things like that and said, um, you know, I, I don't think of myself as a mistake. I don't think of, of my body as, as as something that's gone wrong. Um, the difficulty, of course, is that, you know, you mentioned disability a minute ago and actually the, the area of, of disability theology and kind of disability studies and, uh, and disability activism more broadly is is kind of really useful here to, to kind of think through this stuff with because disability theology does lots of really useful work about, um, you know, how do we define what constitutes a healthy body or an mm. ill body? How do we define what, what constitutes a good body or a problematic body? On the one hand, you could come from quite a, I don't know, happy, shiny view that says, you know, all bodies are equally good and it's brilliant and isn't that amazing. But actually, you know, there's been work by by theologians saying, well, actually, let's take seriously that if you live in a body which suffers chronic pain all the time, that's not a great experience. And actually, you might really look forward to, you might be really invested in the hope that there will be a time where you can experience embodiment in a way that does not bring chronic pain along with it. Um, and I guess that, you know, one of the difficulties is that uh, there are there are theologians who will say just because something happens in nature doesn't mean it's a good thing. You know, so the argument on one side would be, well, intersex exists. It's something that happens. Therefore, you know, we kind of accept it as part of the rainbow of creation, as it were. But there are people that will say, well, well, cancer also happens. And, you know, there are lots of things that happen in and to bodies that we don't necessarily want to want to celebrate. So, you know, so why is, is this different? Um, and for me, what I what I come back to often is to say, well, 
actually for most of the people directly involved, it is they who say, I don't think there's something bad uh, about this. I, I don't think it's kind of something undesirable. Most of the problems I've had have stemmed from the way that I've been treated and responded to rather than because of, of my body itself. Um, you know, there are people who, who have used language like genocide and erasure to talk about surgeries done, you know, non-consensually on, on children in particular with intersex characteristics and have said, you know, that's been a systematic erasure of a particular kind of bodily experience, a particular kind of, of bodily existence. Um, so, you know, we've got some hard, we've got some hard work to do as, as theologians, as ethicists, or, or simply as people that are kind of invested in, um, in, in moral questions about saying, how do we decide and who should decide what makes a particular type of embodiment problematic or not? If we don't simply want to say, if something happens, it must be good, how, how do we discern? And actually, if we take seriously people's autonomy, people's capacity to, to self-direct and so on, we should be taking very seriously what people say about themselves. And in particular, perhaps what other people with intersex characteristics say and have said about their bodies. Um, and for me, I think a lot of the rhetoric within, within Christian circles is because actually whether we whether we kind of drill down into it or not, so much theology is based on the assumption that everybody is male or female. Uh, and as soon as you begin to kind of introduce the idea that maybe things are more complicated than that, there seem to be a whole lot of things that maybe have been taken for granted that, that don't seem so self-evident anymore. So I think that's one reason why it hasn't always been talked about as, as widely as it might have been. Yeah, thank you for that. That's, that's helpful. Um, blanking on the there was something there I wanted to pick up in that in that section um yes it will um oh yeah so the imp empiricism and, and doing research so as you said you wanted to do that in the doctorate work and then couldn't because of the, the constraints but did it in your postdoctoral work and it comes mm -hmm. in this in your chapter uh, yeah. in, in this volume so before we get to actually kind of I mean, you kind of already touched on it. Before we get more into what you experienced you know, in those conversations, mm -hmm. you know, I, I want to talk a bit about the, the, the theological method itself, you know, to, yeah. to, to you know, because the, the, the counter-argument to, well, this is what um, people who have experienced this are saying is, sure, but people are wrong. <laughs> and whereas mm -hmm. the, the, the scriptures and the tradition of the church uh, what should be guiding us, not what people, um, you know, mm -hmm. people that lived experience. So I want to talk a bit about, like, you know, why it has been so important for you to, to lean on this, how it fits with you as, 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 as a theological source uh, mm -hmm. and, and how that's then built out into your work. Yeah. So in, in the chapter in the book, um, what, one of the things I'm trying to do is, is to kind of say, actually, if we take seriously that there are multiple sources of, of revelation, multiple sources of knowledge about, about God and about the world that we live in, um, then how do we hold those together? And what, you know, how much weight should we, should we kind of give to each one and so on? Um, I can't remember whether I kind of talk about it in this chapter explicitly or not, but, but certainly something I've, I've talked about within my work is to say, actually, tradition is, is really, really important, but tradition within Christianity is not understood as something kind of fixed and static. Tradition is, is kind of dynamic and, and unfolding. Um, and what, what we've kind of received as tradition is something that has been kind of shaped and disseminated at various points along the way. So 
even those of us who understand ourselves as being within a faith tradition, for example, um, who perhaps consider ourselves, um, yeah, receivers, recipients of that tradition, it's very rare that we hand on something exactly as it came to us. We, we're kind of doing sifting and we're kind of doing editing and, and curation all the time. Um, and I don't think that's a negative thing. I think it's it's part of the fact that actually we are bringing the tradition into conversation with, with our reason, with the particular kind of concerns of, of our times and so on, and indeed of li- in light of our own experience. Um, and after all, what has come down to us as a tradition is a record of, you know, if we think about uh, kind of people who are our forebears in the tradition, it's it's a record of, of their experience and their understanding and, and their reason applied to scripture and, and so on. So, you know, we're, we're part of an ongoing conversation. Um, and for me, one of the things that I found troubling was that the little that had been written about uh, people with intersex characteristics from a kind of Christian theological perspective um, didn't really seem to have spoken to them about, you know, about what that was like for them and and, and what that what that kind of meant for them. Um, where it had been talked about, it was mostly in the context of, of uh, theologies around trans identity, um, you know, which is more to do with, uh, it's less to do with a, a kind of physical difference. There's there's obviously kind of debate about whether there is a kind of biological basis for, for trans identity. Um, but with intersex characteristics, there is very clearly a, a kind of physical difference. So intersex hadn't really been talked about in its own right. It had mostly been talked about as a kind of foil to, to trans identity. Um, and it, yeah, it seems to kind of come from an assumption that, you know, you mentioned Genesis 127 earlier, that that, that was clear, that that was unambiguous. Um, and one of the things that I wanted to say is, uh, you know, the the, the biblical writers, the, the, the kind of editors, those who've kind of passed those traditions on, they were also people. They were people living in particular times. They were people with particular kind of cosmic and social and cultural and, and scientific or pre-scientific worldviews. Um, when we see a, a verse like Genesis 127 that says, you know, God creates man and female in, in God's image, it's really easy for us to read that and think, oh, male and female, well, I know what that means without kind of saying, what was the cosmology of the particular ancient people who, you know, who, who kind of, who, who created that tradition, which, which we've now received. Um, you know, their embryology, for example, wasn't the same as ours. Um, their understanding of how, you know, what actually happens when an embryo is, is created, it, it wasn't the same as ours. Um, their understandings of, of how male and female related to each other were not the same as ours. Uh, so it's not that, not that everything about, today is kind of unambiguously better necessarily but it was it was just different and we need to take that difference seriously um so for me you know part of the motivation for doing the empirical stuff and, and talking to people was to say actually experience is a really important source experience is the way through which we interpret those other sources through which we interpret the bible and the tradition and, and so on um, is it that actually there are voices that have been systematically left out um, is it that is it that anyone has bothered asking? You know what's what's going on. I wanted to know what was going on. Part of the motivation also was that one of the few people who had written about intersex and theology, kind of before I did my doctoral work, uh, was was Sally Gross, uh, who was one of the contributors to the, the conference in 2013, um, and she was a very well known intersex activist and also a kind of a 
civil rights and anti-apartheid activist in, in South Africa um, through the, the 70s and 80s in particular, spent some time living in, in Britain during that period as well. Um, and she had written about the very, very negative experiences she had had, um, having been told by other Christians that, for example, her baptism couldn't have been valid because only human beings can be baptised, all human beings are male or female. If she was neither male nor female, her baptism was no more valid than the baptism of a tin of tuna would have been, which is, you know, pastorally troubling in all kinds of ways. Um, and I kind of wanted to know, was that a horrible exception? You know, was that a horrible aberration? Or had other people been told the same kind of thing as well? So I, I, I just wanted to know. And I think that's so important. Like, and I think, like, if, if you know, if anything's marked kind of like the latter part of the 20th century to the 21st century of, of, of theology and biblical studies, it is like, hey, maybe we should, like, think about the experiences of a wider set of people. Mm-hmm. And, and I think sometimes we just seem to want, to want to keep, like, okay, we've heard from the last group now. Now we can get on. It's like, no, there's still more people and more experiences right. to hear from. And I think that's, you know, such important work to be doing. And, and you know, in some ways it feels like such a... Um, like an obvious thing, like if you're going to write on a topic, talk to people whose whose topic it is, and, and and build from that experience. But it does seem that like I'll, I'll, you know, probably theology is not the only academic discipline that struggles to do that, but it just does seem to struggle to do that sometimes to actually have those conversations. So I think it's uh, totally. Important. And I think part, partly sometimes it comes from the assumption that there are particular characteristics or identities that people can have, which somehow inherently make their judgment less trustworthy. Mm-hmm. Um, so. You know, some people listening will have come across um, concepts like epistemic injustice, uh, which is a, a phrase that um, that Miranda Fricker uses a lot. So, yeah, the idea that there's there's something about you that means that you're not the best judge, you're not the best arbiter of of your own experience of what's going on with you, and that you need somebody else to kind of come along and interpret it for you. Mm-hmm. Um, in the work that I'm doing at the moment, it, it focuses more around uh, kind of um, gender diversity and, and trans identities, and that's something that trans people see over and over and over again, um, particularly within the church uh, and other faith communities, that there is an assumption that to be somebody who experiences trans identity inherently means that somebody is is kind of mentally ill or psychologically disturbed or just not just can't be trusted to kind of see what's really going on with them. Um, but, you know, we, we see something similar with, with intersex as well, the idea that somebody in this position couldn't, you know, they couldn't really appreciate the way things the way things really are. One of the things that, that I've been working on recently um, is uh, is for a volume which uh, is being edited by Karen O'Donnell and Katie Cross, who are, are both uh, feminist theologians based in Britain, um, on, on trauma theologies. Mm-hmm. So they had a volume that came out uh, earlier this year called uh, Feminist Trauma Theologies. It's going to be a follow-up volume. Um, and I'm writing for that, uh, so I'm co-authoring a chapter with Sarah Gillingham, who is uh, a Christian with intersex characteristics, and also Alex Claire Young, who is a a trans Christian, both of them talking about their experiences of exactly that kind of of epistemic injustice within the church, um, not being trusted to to tell their own stories, um, and actually having experienced traumatisation and re-traumatisation through the the lack of regard that's been given to, to them, um, often by very, very well-meaning people that think that actually the fact that they're even having the conversation with them is is enough, regardless of actually what is being communicated through that, that conversation. Um, 
So, you know, we could say, well, okay, you know, none of us is an island. Um, theology takes place in conversation. It, it takes place in community. You know, we need a diversity of voices. Of course, we need other people to come along and correct us and tell us where we've got it wrong. I don't dispute any of that. But the assumption that actually, by definition, somebody that is in a particular situation, that they actually need somebody else to come along and narrate their experience for them is something that I would like to sort of push back at in this context. Yeah, I think that's so important. I think because sometimes it's almost like, well, you guys have too much skin in the game. Like you guys actually stand to benefit too much yeah. from a change, yeah. um, mm-hmm. which is that's clearly clouding your judgment in, in this case, mm-hmm. which which just seems so abhorrent to uh, to you know to those who claim to follow someone who you know preached good news to the poor. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and and it's one of the uplifting of many. Um, and I think you know we we started to touch on it earlier with this idea of you know, there, there is definitely something to be gained from troubling that is just male and female um, and ever so shall it be um, ontologically and biologically and in, in, in every respect. And that is because, mm-hmm. like, you know, so many of the broader debates around gender and sexual diversity, you know, are, are hinged on that, like, you know, from women leadership to, yep. to transgender inclusion and, and, and all, all of that so, so rests on it. And then even to, you know, broader extent of, 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 I think, a lot of Christianity's complicity and kind of capitalism and things like that is still is based on, you know, wanting particular gender roles or, um, or, or you know, um, unconsciously buying into that, yeah, of course you'd have a row of toys for girls and a row of toys for boys mm-hmm. and we're going to make sure we get eight of each for the church's basement. You know, like, um, that, that, you know, there's a lot of, you know, th- this is like a, a field that can you know, liberate a lot of the church from a binary it has allowed itself to be um, constrained by. Um, you can respond to anything in that or nothing. Or I guess the, the, the part that I kind of wonder about is, like, as you've seen this field grow over 15 or so years um, and hopefully going to continue to grow, what's the, what's the work you're looking forward to seeing or hoping that's going to emerge? Uh, I mean, obviously some, some exceptional work that you're already involved in, but just what, what are the things you're like, full books need to be just on this subtopic of this whole field. Like, yeah. you know, Genesis 127 is a clear one, but like, you know, just, just like whole things need to be blown up. You know, let's, yeah. what would you like to see? So, I mean, one of the one of the things that has happened in the last yeah fifteen twenty years is um, much much more work being done on on intersex from all kinds of areas. So, um, you will know being in Australia because Australia is is one of the countries that does now have a, a kind of legal designation for somebody that is not male or female. It's mm. you know it's possible to to get a passport with that designation. That's happened in part because of campaigning by. Um, by figures like Tony Briffer, who's a very um, high-profile uh, intersex person in, in Australia. Um, but, yeah, a, a kind of recognition that there's all kinds of reasons why binary categories don't necessarily do justice to lots and lots of people, sometimes because they have a physical difference, as in the case of, of intersex characteristics, sometimes because they, they kind of have a difference of, of identity as, as with, uh, you know, gender diversity and, and so on. But... We're seeing lots and lots more reflection on, um, you know, the need for for more widespread legal recognition, um, kind of more explicit protection for uh, for intersex rights. So, um, within Europe, kind of going back about sort of seven or eight years, 
there are statements that have come out from bodies like the Council of Europe, for example, saying that actually um, early corrective surgery done non-consensually on, on children with intersex characteristics should be thought of in the same bracket as, as torture um, and kind of other non-consensual things that, that are done to bodies and that actually carrying out certain kinds of uh, medical intervention on, on the bodies of young children in that way especially those which, um, you know, leads to them not being able to reproduce, for example, is, is really, really ethically problematic. So there's, there's lots more being, work being done on that, you know, from within the kind of legal and, and civil rights arena. Um, uh, you know, some of the people working in that area who, who are my colleagues and others, you know, one of the areas that I'm kind of really excited to, to develop is to say, what are some of the tensions between appeals to things like human rights discourses and what's going on within certain faith communities. So why have some faith communities been quite circumspect about the language of, of human rights, for example? Um, is, it, is it coming from quite a cynical place because it's a challenge to, you know, what people would say is, is kind of divine authority, but authority that then kind of manifests within particular religious institutions, for example? Is it coming from actually a you know, an, an honest and a, a, a well-meant place of kind of saying, actually, appeal to human rights just doesn't go far enough because you can appeal to human rights till the cows come home. But actually, as we see at Guantanamo and all over the place, the fact that human rights supposedly exist doesn't mean that actually it's always upheld and it doesn't stop us as humans doing terrible, awful things to each other. Um, so is there something that we should be kind of thinking of and appealing to alongside human rights? Um, you know, so people like... Uh, Nicholas Walsenstorff and, and Rowan Williams and others have kind of said rights language is it's just quite combative you know it assumes that somebody is claiming rights over against something or, or someone else is is that the best place to start um, and one of the things that I've been working on recently is a suggestion that actually some faith traditions so Christianity among them Ju uh, Judaism uh, and Islam also what they have had a really really strong tradition of is the idea of sanctity of life and the idea of the importance of bodies and of embodiment. And we see that, obviously, in particular within Christianity, within the doctrine of incarnation, which says, actually, embodiment is not something to be disparaged. In fact, it's one of the ways that, that God has kind of entered into the world in Christ. Therefore, materiality is not something to be escaped or, or transcended. Bodies are something to be taken really, really seriously. I think one of the ironies of some conservative Christian responses to intersex is I think they've come from a place that says we want to take maleness and femaleness really, really seriously. You know, we want to say all humans are not identical with one another. Um, there is something distinctive. There is something specific about the experience of being a human female as opposed to a human male. God creates male and female in God's image. Maleness is not kind of closer to divinity I think that all comes from a really, really good place. But the irony is that in wanting to protect that diversity, it ends up kind of becoming, yeah, concretized, petrified in its own way. So it becomes that, well, then only male and female are made in God's image. And if there's anything that appears ambiguous or, or different, that can't be part of God's image. That must be something that's, that's gone wrong. Um, so I think I'm a little bit diffident about this because one of the things that I'm really aware of, it, it comes up in several of the... Um, in several of the essays within the, the volume that we're talking about comes up in my interviews and it comes up, you know, again and again with, you know, intersex people of faith that I still talk to is they say that they feel that often 
um, people have almost seized on the existence of intersex and used it as a means to something else. So they've used it as a means to saying, well, therefore, sex isn't real. And so same-sex marriage must be okay, which, you know, is not, I, I'm not arguing that same-sex marriage is not okay, but actually I can see why, I can see why some people make the argument that almost when people have discussed people with intersex characteristics, it's always been, yeah, in service of something else rather than saying, well, what are the actual concerns that people with intersex characteristics have? What are the things that they're worried about, if anything? You know, are there are there particular things that that that, that they need or want? So while I want to see more kind of discussion in this area that takes proper account of the kind of messy and complicated nature of human embodiment, I wouldn't want to lose sight of the fact that actually we're still talking about specific people here and that their specific voices and specific testimonies are really, really important. That's, yeah, I think that's such a great thing. And I, and thank you for that. And I think, you know, that is something that the church, you know, which a church has a long tradition of, of testimony and, 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 and telling our stories and seeing how our stories weave into the story of God is something that we should be valuing and not um, pushing off to the side because it messes up. Uh, whatever tidy views that we think we have developed over time. And, and as you say, views that might not, you know, that might not fit necessarily as well with the biblical account as we think, or uh, let, um, re- require us to take on a lot more views of the world and the body than we, <laughs> and we are willing to go with. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's, that's just so important. Um, yeah. So it's a, thank you for that. But this has been great. Like I, I've, I've learned a lot and I hope okay. many, many others have as they've, as they've heard this. Uh, obviously, we haven't even really scratched the surface of, of the volume because, you know, the, the pieces are written by other people and, and, you can, and mm-hmm. people can check those out. Got a whole host of great writers reflecting, as, as Susanna said, um, there's like you know, a section on biblical studies, on theolo- theological reflections, on pastoral and practical approaches, you know, a really good diversity of, of reflection. Um, writers from, uh, from North America, from, from the UK and from Australia um, and potentially other places that I'm forgetting, but at least you know, a breadth of, of input. So really, really worth checking out. And so are your other works. Do you want to shout out what else people can check out uh, of yours either that's already out or that they should keep an eye out on out for? Yeah, so if people are interested in, in intersex specifically, um, the the PhD thesis eventually became a book. So that came out in 2010. Um, and that is before the days when publishers made you have titles that were just what it says on the tin. So it's got a long title. Um, it's called Sex and Uncertainty in the Body of Christ. And then the subtitle is Intersex Conditions and Christian Theology. Um, the book I'm working on at the moment, uh, the provisional title is Constructive Theology and Gender Variance, Transformative Creatures. Um, and that should be out with Cambridge University Press next year sometime. Um, my most recent book that's out at the moment is with Bloomsbury TNT Clark, uh, and that's called Unfamiliar Theology. Uh, oh, what is the subtitle? Sex, reproduction and generativity, I think. Um, and that's that's really looking at the fact that a lot of uh, a lot of recent uh, church statements on on sexuality of the last kind of 50 years or so seem to come from a place that assumes that that basically before that understandings of, of marriage and the family and, and parenting and so on were unchanged and <laughs> yeah. kind of an unbroken line from Genesis. And I'm kind of saying not only is that not the case, but actually it does a disservice to the the kind of richness of the tradition. It engages with some of the stuff I was talking about earlier that says, you know, yes, we all inherit things 
from the traditions that we find ourselves in, but we're disseminators as well. And, and we've got responsibility for, for what we hand on. Um, so yeah, that's that book. Um, mm. Yeah. Oh, that's that, 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 that especially is so great. Like I was thinking like I'm part of Uniting Church in Australia and last two years ago at our assembly was when we um, affirmed, you know, two rights for marriage to have, so the same sex marriage could be performed um, mm-hmm. in our churches by our clergy. And, but like part of, you know, producing the theological papers that led to that were like, you know, a, a series of kind of cultural, cross-cultural papers, which were just like, yeah, it's not like this thing is enshrined, very simple, very standardized view of, of mm-hmm. gender and marriage and and these kind of things. Like it, it's being wildly different. And a lot of it, you know, yeah, yeah, we can't, you know, you can't appeal to this kind of um natural um view that that somehow has uh, you know standards was was unchanged until, you know, some pesky feminist in the 60s or something like that. You know, like, you know, right. so I think that's that that that's that's so important. We'll have to get you back on to talk about the new book when it comes out. That would yeah, be sure. great. That'd be great. Um, and yeah, and people can check out uh, Exeter if they want to if they want to study and get those books. And yeah, thank you so much for for coming on today, um, and and for talking to us about this book and and you know, the excellent work that you're doing. Thank you. Thanks for having me. No worries.